0: The Reverend Ian Markham tells a story about a conversation that he had with his son at a McDonald's while enjoying french fries, which by the way, it is over french fries that many of our most important conversations in life take place. And their conversation meandered over a a myriad of topics, and eventually it, it led towards talking about the speed of light, because that's how conversations over french fries go. But at one point he says to his son, Do you realize, son, that you're not seeing me as I am now, but as I was before the light reached your eyes? Light travels at 186,000 miles a second, which is pretty quick, but it does mean that the time that it takes for you to discover what I'm like, I may have morphed into an ice cream cone or to an elephant. And his son paused and had a serious look on his face, and finally he answered in a dramatic voice, Oh no, I am stuck in the past. Now Reverend Markham points out what our teachers in grade school taught us about the speed of light. And even if that is true, we really know that it's of little consequence to us in our day-to-day lives. Our brains are not fast enough to process such a minuscule lapse in time. But what is of consequence is if you look up towards the sky, we can see this. When you look up at the sky, whether it's day or night, you can see the past. Space is big, really big. We are 93 million miles away from the star, our local star we call the sun. That means that it takes eight seconds for the light from the sun to travel to Earth. And if you enjoyed the eclipse not so long ago, it ended eight seconds before you knew it. Or when you see a sunset, it's over eight seconds before the sun actually goes down. It's one of the countless stars, though, in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is 100,000 miles across. And in our single galaxy, Big G... There are millions and millions of other galaxies, lowercase g's. And then, of course, we have the universe. And some of the stars that we see in the night sky, they burned out thousands and thousands of years ago. So in truth, the sun was exactly right. We are always looking at our past. Depending upon which star you're looking at, of course. Relatively speaking, we live on a rock that in comparison to the known universe is microscopically smaller than a grain of a sand. And these wonders of creation historically lead us to some very, very old questions that we still ask today. How did this all begin? Who created this? Who is God? Can we ever really understand fully how this all works or came to be? Can we ever be satisfied or assured that the answers we come up will, will they will remain true or will they change? And history tells us that such big questions, well, they can be dangerous to approach in some circles. Even if the Greeks, four to six centuries before the birth of Christ, scientifically sorted out the earth was round, the debate continued for centuries, mostly in religious circles, even in small pockets in our own day. By and large, humanity has believed the world flat for most of our history. We only took pictures of the sun in the 1960s, I mean the earth in the 1960s. And even if these things prove that the earth is round, that we're not the center of the universe as we once thought, these truths felt like the universe had been turned upside down. But in truth, the universe didn't change one bit. We did. So how much of the same, how much of these big questions apply to the one that we believe created all of this? If we have so much to discover about life and creation in the universe, how much more do we have to learn about the creator of all that is? How do we ever find the solid grounds of understanding the one that we say is not knowable, unknowable, but still omnipotent and with us and what do we mean by saying things like that who are we in relationship to this big questions what we know of god is shaped by our scriptures by our preachers theologians parents mentors friends experiences we use our brains we're thinking people tradition keeps us looking back so that we can look forward Traditions are what echoes who we have been and who we might become. We have been taught that God, the creator of all that is, that from God came came Christ. Yet consider just how many ideas we have about these truths. Those we love most in this life can think quite differently, right? And there are times in our history that big questions threaten to tear us apart. Therefore, we are wise to proceed with caution in our discernments about God and faith. And it seems appropriate to remember that our grasp on God is always incomplete. And I say all these things because. In truth, Jesus puts us on the spot today. Jesus asks us two very simple but poignant questions. Well, who do others say that I am? and Who do you say that I am? I was at Disney World a number of years ago in my happy place, the campgrounds there. And we were gathered around the fire pit, or I was, because there's a nightly sing-along with Chip and Dale. (laughs) Now this community fire pit is where you go to roast marshmallows and your hot dogs, and I am in the place I love to be, and I'm loving it. And the farthest thing from my mind in that moment were the workings of the universe and the big questions of faith. So a gentleman joins me at the fire pit. He has his own marshmallows, and we're roasting away. We're talking, and we're, we're both enjoying the moment. And then he asks me, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I say, well, I'm a pastor. Now, please don't get me wrong. I love what I do. But there are times I'm not so sure I want to answer that question honestly. Because for some reason, when folks find out you're the clergy type, well, they want to ask big questions. And this was one of those moments, and I knew it before he asked, because I saw the familiar look in his face. Oh, you're a pastor. And I immediately knew that the big question was coming. And I tell you, I really do not recall what the question was. And that's less consequential in me telling you this story. So just imagine any hot-button issue that comes to your mind, and I'll let you fill in the blank, and it applies. So he looks at me, and he asks, So what do you think about, now you fill in the blank, and In short, I feel like I'm being called out perhaps, or I knew that depending upon my answer, he would think less or more of me. And again, I don't recall my answer, but I do recall exactly what I thought. I said, man, I just want to roast the marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> I want to sing silly songs. I want to dance with Chip and Dale when they come out here tonight. That's all I want to do. I really don't want to ask the big, answer the big questions of God in the universe right now. And I do know that after I answered, I got another similar reply. Oh, I see. (laughs) You see, I know that I'm not the only one who has this happen. We all do, right? This is not a clergy-only experience. We all find ourselves in this place. Depending upon our answers, we can anticipate applause or harshness. And depending upon others' answers, maybe we participate in that too sometimes. Maybe we are dared to ask, answer Jesus' questions. Like, Dare we answer his question today in front of good company? Who do others say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Dare we answer this question? Dare we answer it in front of the world? Dare we uh, answer it in front of one another in the presence of God, the creator of all that is? Dare we even answer who Jesus is? How do we put into words whom we believe Jesus is and get it all together right and in an all together satisfactory way? What if we get it wrong? What if I get it wrong in front of you today? Then what? By the time, by this time, Jesus and the disciples had seen God do a lot of things, had seen Jesus do a lot of things. They had seen him walk on water, They had seen him feed thousands of people with a handful of food. They had seen him be a great teacher to lift up the lowly, forgive sinners, and and welcome untouchable strangers. So maybe these are the things that needed to be included in their answer. These were the credentials of Jesus. And word around town was that Jesus was the resurrected presence of a former prophet. Some said Jesus was John the Baptist who had just died. Others, Elijah, Jeremiah, are one of the other prophets. Now, there's truth here. Jesus' presence was not all unrelated to such folks. But none of these grasped what Peter seemed to see. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Period. And because of this answer, Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. But honestly, why such an exuberant response from Jesus? What really has Peter said in these eight or nine words that warrant this? We say Jesus is the Messiah all the time, right? Yet knowing that has not solved all our troubles. It has not answered all of our big questions. When I was ordained, I had to write 25 pages of words and ideas about sacraments and God and the church and Jesus and 25 pages is not a lot of pages to explain God right Well <laughs> now what if I had written down Peter's answer Jesus is the Messiah the son of the living God period here you go I don't think it would have passed the muster but Peter says this and when Peter says that he's the Messiah Jesus talks like Peter himself has opened the doors of all creation and that the meaning of life has been laid out loud for us to hear Why is this simple, if not common, answer, why has it caused Jesus to give Peter the keys to the kingdom? Because of this very message, the early church often created artistic expressions of St. Peter wearing authoritative clothes and, and displayed in fine paintings and often surrounded with gold. And there's an old legend that a visit from Dominique to the Pope that the Holy Father gave Dominique a tour of the Vatican, and as they stood in front of Peter's throne, the Pope remarks, No longer can Peter say, Silver and gold have I none. And to that, Dominique, suggesting that maybe we've placed Peter on a pedestal too high, says, Well, neither did he say rise or walk. Only Christ raised Lazarus. Note that Jesus never says Peter is the rock. Jesus offers that the truth to which Peter speaks is the rock. And that truth is that the Messiah is Christ. Jesus is not the resurrected form of a former prophet. Jesus is the very son of God, the very son of humanity. And this truth was central to Mark's purpose, to make it clear that Christ is the first laid stone, the creative and redemptive worker of God's kingdom that would establish the church. And for this moment, Peter's simple, succinct, if not austere answer is sufficient. It's a uniting truth. It is the key, it is the thing that we might all believe together and as one. We, may, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to grasp this, misunderstanding this meaning and, un, and living into the ramifications of this truth. We will fall short to this, but the truth that remains unites us, you and me and every Christian, past, present, and future. The church is built upon the rock-solid truth. We are co-creators with Christ in building the church that Jesus is our Messiah. Hence the power of Jesus' second question today. As one person wrote Jesus' words to Peter and the disciples echo the first words God ever spoke to humanity. To Adam and Eve, God said, you may freely eat of any fruit in the garden, except for that one, of course, over there. (laughs) And suddenly, in those words, this first couple realized that they had a stake They had responsibility. They had a part in the creative work of God. And Jesus makes it clear, so do we. This is about Christ's identity. But it is also about our identities bound in Christ and bound with one another. Bound with all who call on Christ. Jesus did a lot of amazing things. And we have them written in the scriptures and some we don't even know about but none of them compared to perhaps the greatest miracle that Christ performed. As someone else wrote during his earthly ministry, perhaps there was no greater miracle than the miracle of inviting these 12 poor, pigeonholed, and imprudent persons into community and empower them to live into a new ident- identity and begin the church. Jesus giving away the keys to the kingdom to this lot was like give the parents giving the keys to the child to the family car for the first time. It wasn't certain. And we will see that story unfold as well. But the wisdom of Christ is to entrust the church to people like you and me. God's wisdom is to entrust people who sometimes get things right and sometimes get them wrong. Sometimes really right and sometimes really wrong. And the only thing that will keep us upright, the only thing that keeps us standing together is the grace of God. This is why the church has endured. This is why the church will endure. And this is why the incredible grace of God is so central to our faith. When the day comes that I leave this world and I go to the life to come, I do not think that I will meet God and there hear God say that you are right more than you are wrong. That's why you're here. I think I will be there because of Peter's great truth today. I think that I will be there because Christ is the Messiah. Because Christ is the Redeemer. Because Christ is the one who's able to overcome my faults. This is the starting point of our faith. This is the rock from which we are hewn. It is our cornerstone. Everything builds on this truth. This is what we can know. Yet how can we live this between now and then? I've long appreciated the writings of Frederick Buechner. And one of the recurring ideas he often said was that we must listen to our lives because God is always speaking. He once compared life to an alphabet made only of consonants and no vowels, such as the Hebrew text. It's impossible to vocalize words and build sentences if we do not have vowels. We need vowels to speak and articulate and enunciate. Well, there's something here that Speaks to the power of the truth that Peter exhibits. Because grace does the same thing for you and me. As Beekner writes, and I paraphrase grace, salvation, it supplies the vows that help make our lives have sense. Into the jumble of consonants that our lives throw at us, we are giving by grace the vows we need to express and build something lovely. Jesus came as Messiah because we all so utterly needed someone to deliver us. This is true for us all. This grace is the big bang of our faith. It is uniting truth of the church, and it empowers us to build up the church in this day and all days ahead. So may we make room for the good grace of God to build this church and to build God's kingdom in the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.